the, the topic we're going to be looking at today, 10 years ago, may have been somewhat novel. But thankfully, um, it has become mainstream. And I'm so grateful for that. I think back over the years that I've been involved with this conference, and there's, there's been a growing sense that loving God and wanting to do good is not enough. We need to bring the very best wisdom that we can together accumulate. The, the very best discernment, the most deeply rooted faithfulness in our hearts in order to serve God well. I think of people like uh, Dan, Dan Fountain, who passed away this year. Some of you knew Dan. Dan was a relentless advocate for holistic, comprehensive, community-based, empowered approaches to doing Christian health ministries. And all of us are indebted to him. Folks from MAP International and CHE and Florence Mwindi from uh, Life in Abundance and Brian Fickert, who's speaking here, and Greg Seeger, a bunch of these folks have made immense contributions. So I say that just as a backdrop for saying there's nothing new, novel, innovative that you're going to hear. And some of you have experiences and wisdom that pertain to this topic that I'm hoping we'll be able to hear from um, as, as we move forward in this time. So um, my name is Michael Smith or Mick Smith, and um, so I'm really glad that you're here with us. Uh, by the way, Gordon, what is our ending time? Okay, find out let us know because we will all be interested in that, some sooner than others. 4.50. All right. Good deal. Good. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, you are the source of power, of strength. You spoke into existence this whole universe. And you have breathed your spirit into the lives of folks like us, ordinary people. And we thank you for that amazing gift. Help us to be faithful stewards of that treasure. In Jesus' name, amen. The basic thesis behind what we're talking about today is that no single factor enhances the likelihood of sustained improvement in the health of an individual or a family or a community or even a nation. Than more than empowerment. So in this session, I'm going to spend a little bit of time sort of laying the groundwork for this, but then we'll review some of the basics, the nuts and bolts of what do we mean by empowerment? Why is it important to us as followers of Jesus? How does it pertain to health outcomes? How do we empower in health ministries, and how can you measure that? And where do we go to learn more about this whole arena? Um, a little bit about how I got to this point of interest. Ten, 10, 15 years ago, 
I was barely aware of the concept of empowerment as it pertained to ministry, let alone to health ministry. But over the last decade, I've been blessed with opportunity to interact with a number of mentors. And as you look at the names of several of them here, you'll recognize right away none of them were born in the United States. They were the ones who had the life experience and the perspective on ministry and the sensitivity to God's Spirit to introduce me to the whole concept of important, uh, of empowerment and how important that is. They were the ones who, back um, in, my, in a previous life, when I was working with MAP International, helped me to, to recognize that we need to move beyond what they called a pathogenic model of health development. Instead, they, they preferred a, what they called a healthgenic approach that looked at health as a beautiful gift from God that we are to nurture, to cultivate, to expand. And so in, in their context, they were in ministries of what they called promoting total health. They meant basically two things by that. One, that what we refer to as health rests in a web of interconnected factors that include social determinants of health, that include education, that include the environment, that include uh, gender-based violence, nutrition, a whole web of factors. In their concept of total health, though, the energy for change, the energy for transformation is what they called empowerment. And that is, as you work with people in chronically distressed communities, you soon recognize that there are things that only the residents of that community can do, which will bring sustainable improvement to their health. During my MAP years, I also was privileged to participate in a group of, uh, folk, with a group of folks in some research. Uh, Dr. Monique Hennink at Rollins School of Public Health at Emory, um, Dr. Dunge Kiti, um, who's a Kenyan woman who has a PhD from Cornell teaches at Houghton College in New York, Ravi Jayakaran, who's a regular presenter here at the GMHC, um, working on a research on how do NGOs or non-government organizations doing international health, how do they define and operationalize and how do they measure empowerment? So the research involved interaction with uh, 40 or 50 NGOs who participated in the response and some really valuable learning. Um, Dr. Dunge Kiti was able to present some preliminary findings on that at an African Religious Health Assets Program conference in Cape Town in 2009. And then the group, after I was um, out of the project, uh, published an article in Development in Practice uh, entitled Defining Empowerment, Perspectives from International Development Organizations. So it was in the context of some of that MAP work that, uh, and if you're not familiar, MAP is Medical Assistance Programs, um, that I was really introduced to and became passionate about the concept of empowerment. And so, by the way, um, 
this is how you can get in touch with me if you're interested in these slides or some of the articles that, that I'll mention along the way. Um, big picture context. Those of you who've been around a few decades um, know that there are some really encouraging developments on the global health scene. There has been major attention, major investment from a public policy and foreign policy avenue. Unprecedented billions of dollars have been poured into health issues. And some of the fruit of that we see in things like a 33% decline in the incidences of new AIDS infections. And those of us who were involved in this 10, 15 years ago knew that we were facing the possibility of devastation in many parts of the world. And we thank God that that's beginning to decline. Surge of attention to malaria and other neglected disease. From 1990 until the present, the number of deaths of children under five globally has been cut in half. And I hope you can grasp the historic significance of that. So very, very encouraging. And yet there is a lot that remains to, to be done. Even with cutting in half the number of child deaths, that means almost 18,000 children a day under age five are dying. Does that get any attention in the news? How about if there were 36 jumbo jets full of children under five crashing every day, 365 days a year? That would get attention. All of the 16 countries where the under five mortality rate is above 100 deaths per thousand live births are in sub-Saharan Africa. And globally, a relatively new phenomenon, non-communicable diseases are becoming dominant and demanding more and more attention and resources. There's a lot of work that's to be done. And so we have to ask, are we continuing in practice to do some things that are undermining progress? In 2008, an African regional faith-based coalition shared these com their concern that a dominant culture of service provision, intervention, and welfare is well-intentioned, but undermines the capacity of local communities to acknowledge concerns, to act on shared vision, to respond to the behaviors that put them at risk. Technical and organizational capacity development is often valued over human capacity development. And they defined then human capacity as the basic common human strengths for care through accompaniment and participation, change, hope, relational influence, and belonging. And they said these human capacity strengths are innate but often suppressed and need support to be unveiled. Dr. Margaret Chan oops, knocked off my microphone, excuse me for a second. Um, Dr. Margaret Chan in her 2008 address 
to the Red Cross and Red Crescent Society's Global Health um, Care and Care Forum, wrote, primary health starts with people. Our common humanity compels us to respect people's universal aspiration for a better life. It compels us to respect the resilience and ingenuity of the human spirit and the great capacity of individuals and communities to solve their own problems. And that's what empowerment is about. And it's, it's not news to you that, that a movement really is underway, that uh, it is rooted in some amazing work that's been done through the year. Several of you were, may have been here in 2008 when Dr. Carl Taylor, then 90 years old, um, spoke in one of our plenary sessions. And he went out to India, as an, or actually was born in India to missionary parents, um, was the founder of the School of International Health at Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. And he wrote the book pictured here, Just and Lasting Change When Communities Own Their Future. And it was his influence as a teacher then in the 1960s and 70s to spawn projects like the Jamked Project in India and Chilimarca in Bolivia and Kakamega in Kenya and projects that are today global pace centers in terms of community-based health projects that are truly empowered in some in rich and inspiring ways. We've been talking about empowerment, though. And I want us to think a minute about, about the language and the question, can any of us really empower somebody else? I mean, do I have excess power so I can walk up to you and somehow transmit? Not really. Not really. Some of my colleagues from outside the U.S. are suggesting the language of self-empowerment. Not in the sense that God is not the original empowerer, but recognizing that none of us can literally empower someone. And perhaps the best image is to envision that by God's grace we may be allowed to walk alongside them to help them rediscover and re-engage the power that is inherently their own. We think of examples from Jesus. Look through the Gospels. As you're reading the Gospels, look at the way that Jesus interacted with everyone, especially the marginalized, through the lens of a deep respect for the fact that that person is my sister, is my brother, no, no matter what, no exceptions. We are one. Not only is this my sister brother, but we are one. Our life holds together. So from that profound sense of, of respect, Jesus touched lepers and blind, spoke with, spoke with unacceptable women, ate with sinners. And he also, though, notice the empowerment or self-empowerment dimension invited them to do what they could do and they should do. Take up your mat and walk. Go show yourself to the priest. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You unwrap him and let him go. 
So for those of us engaged in or, or intending to be engaged in community health ministries or in health ministries of any type, the starting point is with our beliefs, what we believe to be true. If we believe that local communities, especially those who have lived in chronic poverty, have inherent strengths to author their own stories, then we will see in them the capacity to rediscover their capacity to dream, to learn to evaluate, to mobilize and organize, to take constructive steps, to basically to write their own stories. Okay, so what is empowerment? Let's, let's talk about just, just the nuts and bolts. Power is, according to Merriam-Webster at least, the ability to act or to produce an effect. That's power. It's just simple. It's influence. So the language of empower assumes then or asserts that some have it and some don't. And in our context for today, it suggests that there are some changes um, that, 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 that makes a difference in terms of health outcomes. Chu is going to come up in a minute. Chu teaches nursing at Cedarville University, and I've asked her to read a story that I want you to, to hear through this lens of power. It's a story that I first heard here at the Global Mission Health Conference in 2005. Greg and, and Candy Seeger were, um, were presenting a workshop. So, Chu, would you mind coming, please? Uh, if you don't mind, stand right by the microphone and also put the recorder can pick you up. Kind of short. <laughs> okay. Um, in the village in India, Raku had wanted to only breastfeed her baby. This had long been the tradition of women in their village. However, in order for her family to survive, Raku had to work in the landowner's fields from dawn to dusk. With the long hours of separation from her baby, she had little choice but to give her baby other foods. Soon, uh, she no longer could produce much breast milk. As both a landless peasant and a woman, Raku was doubly disadvantaged. For long hours of exhausting work, she was paid too little to adequately feed her family. Since the age of seven, her older son, Kana, had been helping making ends meet by taking the cattle of several land-only families out to graze in the scrub. While she was working in the distant fields, Raku left her baby in their wattle hut in the care of her five-year-old daughter, Panu. Each morning before dawn, Raku would haul water from the distant water hole. She would pound a few handful of ragi, which is millet, and cook it into gruel for the family to eat. Although there was often not enough ragi to fill um, all their stomachs, Raku would, uh, Raku would always leave a little on the plate 
instructing Panu to feed it to the baby while her mother was at work in the distant fields. Even with the older children also working, the family's earnings could uh, sacredly buy enough food. The baby, like the rest of the family, often went hungry. Worsening malnutrition and repeated bouts of diarrhea soon became a vicious cycle. Sometimes Raku took the sick baby to a traditional healer who would give him rice, water, and herbal teas. The baby would usually get better for a few days, but soon Raku's baby became thinner and thinner. One day he developed such severe diarrhea that did not get much better even when Raku gave him the traditional remedies of rice water and herbal tea. His running stomach continued for several days until the baby was as limp and shrivel as the rice paddy in uh, drought. In desperation, Raku decided to take her baby to the hospital in the city. This was a hard decision as Raku had to miss a day's work and a day's pay. At best, this meant a day without food for the family had no uh, reserves. At worst, Raku might lose her job, the consequences of which she was afraid of thinking, to think about. She, she knew that a wiser mother would let her sick baby die to preserve the rest of the family. But Raku love, uh, Raku's love for her baby was too strong. Raku sold a bronze pot she had inherited from her mother, the last of her remaining possessions, of any value to pay for bus fare and med medicine and took her baby to the city hospital. She had to pay bribe to the guard to let her in the hospital gate. After hours of waiting and long lines, at last her baby was seen. By then, the baby was, one of the, was on the verge of death. The doctor scolded Raku for waiting so long and for not taking better care of her baby. He referred her to a nurse who carefully explained to her the importance of breastfeeding and something the nurse called hygiene. Above all, the nurse emphasized her baby needed more and better food. Raku listened in silence. Meanwhile, the doctor put a needle into a vein in the baby's ankle and connected it by a thin tube to a bottle of glucose water. By evening, the baby's uh, shrunken body filled out a bit and he seemed more alert. The diarrhea had stopped and the late night nurse removed the needle from baby's leg. The next morning, the doctor gave Raku a prescription for medic medicines to buy in the pharmacy and send them home. On the way home, the baby's diarrhea began again. Arriving back home, Raku had neither food, nor money, nor anything left to sell. Her baby died a short time later. So... So why did Raku's baby die? 
and you've just had a snapshot of disempowerment. And you can under, you could imagine then, if this story were in the Gospels, that Jesus looked on them and was moved with compassion. And our task in health ministries today live in this reality. Raku's situation is not rare. It is reality for tens of millions, hundreds of millions of women like Raku around the world today. And thus our challenge to face seriously the whole arena of empowerment. Empowerment from, from a research perspective, is both an outcome and a process. And let's, let's take a few minutes to talk about it as, as an outcome. Researchers talk about the term agency as really being the foundation upon which empowerment is built. A number of the researchers have, have said that agency is what a person is free to do and able to do and achieve in pursuit of whatever goals or values that they consider to be important. So when we talk about empowerment, empowerment is simply the process of increasing or expanding agency, or some people use the term self-agency. A number of NGOs during our research process, then in light of that, defined empowerment uh, in different ways, but they continue to come back to consistent themes. Uh, One NGO said uh, empowerment is a state where people can make choices and take actions on their own behalf with self-confidence from a position of economic, political, social strength. Another one said empowerment is communities. And and you'll, you'll notice that empowerment sometimes is spoken of regarding individuals. Sometimes it's related to communities. Sometimes it's related to organizations that are rooted in other parts of the world. So... This NGO said, empowerment is communities taking ownership of and including themselves in the efforts to solve their problems and better their own lifestyles. But I'm wondering, after we've talked about this, how would you describe someone who is not empowered? What is the opposite of empowered? And that's not a hypothetical question. I'd be interested in your, your thoughts on that. Helpless. Dependent. What else? Not empowered. Disenfranchised. Unable. Oppressed. Yep. Precisely. And in some cases, coerced. In some cases, passive. Just with a fatalistic sense of this is the best that it's going to be. But empowerment is also a process. The outcome is empowerment, but the process of getting there has to also be empowering. And one of the basics is that it is inevitably 
rooted in community. Rarely, on occasion, you can see individuals who will move out of a totally disempowered setting toward being empowered, but in most cases, it's going to be at the community level. Individuals and families and even communities do not exist in a vacuum. And so any process of empowerment is going to take into account multiple factors. Some of the researchers point to, and by the way, that JALC there um, is a reference to Just and Lasting Change, the Carl Taylor uh, book that I mentioned earlier. But focus on there is, there is a bottom-up dimension from the people in the community. There is a top-down, or it maybe could be better described as an all-around factor of, of public policy, governmental policy, that inevitably either creates conditions in which people can thrive or conditions in which it's extremely difficult to move out of poverty and oppression and disempowerment. But then the other is where we mo- most of us tend to come in, and that is the outside in, the outside experts, the outside resources who can bring important ideas and skills. Empowerment, though, is never, never easy. In case you haven't caught on, don't expect to empower a community and turn their lives around on a 10-day mission trip. Okay? Uh, One of the NGOs said, we stress that empowerment is context-specific. There is no one-size-fits-all empowering process. It is Highly reversible. You can, over a period of years, see some significant progress that can be undermined in a week's time by a change in government policy, by the intervention of a well-meaning mission team or mission agency or NGO that comes in and intervenes in a way that completely undermines the self, the the empowerment process. And this NGO says, empowering is deeply non-linear. There's not an A, B, C, D path. There are many complex factors that are illustrated here. And I don't want to get, get us lost in the weeds on this. But I want you to notice at the bottom of this, the, the focal point is health empowerment. And look at the various streams that have to come together to feed this. If you look on um, your right, uh, let's see, yeah, the left side of the screen, the blue box at the bottom is the availability of care. And look at some of the things that are, that are connected with that. Up at the very top, political and legal empowerment. Sometimes in order to to have health care even available in your area, then you have to be involved in advocacy with the government to change laws, local or national. Uh, an example, a team working uh, in health development in Bolivia found that sexual abuse of children was rampant. As they looked around, they, they discovered that, number one, 
There was no law on the books in Bolivia making it illegal to sexually abuse a child, in spite of the fact that Bolivia had signed on some international treaties to that effect. There was no law. And in addition, children did not have citizenship rights, human rights, until they were age 15 or 16. So this particular mission had to engage in advocacy at the national level to get laws changed as a foundation piece to enable addressing in a consistent and successful and sustainable way sexual abuse of children as a fundamental health issue. And so there's a whole string of factors listed there on, on the right side of your page. And then over on the left side, the, at the bottom there that all of these boxes and arrows are feeding toward is access to care. The ability to make choices regarding care. Up at the top left in that section, changing norms. Sometimes the process of health empowerment requires that you work with the local community to change local standards and norms and culture and tradition in order to make it possible for someone like Raku to access health care when it does become available. So the point of all this is just to say it's a nonlinear process. It's very complex. I mentioned the advocacy piece there. I want to um, mention that um, if you're doing short-term missions, you may want to stop by uh, our Bread for the World exhibit at 12.03 because we have a resource that helps mission teams develop eyes to recognize the places where there are public policy dimensions that need some attention as a part of the whole empowerment process. Um, these books we normally sell, but we'll be, I'll be glad to give you one if you stop by later on. Okay, so the role of outsiders, again, the, the emphasis so far has been on the importance of the local community's engagement. A WHO article in 06 that was entitled, What's the Evidence on Effectiveness of Empowerment to Improve Health? Explained, advocates or external change agents, which would be any of us, may catalyze actions or help create spaces for people to learn, but sustainability and empowerment occur only as people create their own momentum, gain their own skills, and advocate for their own changes. And that's huge, huge importance. So what are the implications for us? One of the basics is, well, we're talking about how do we change attitudes and beliefs and practices in the local community? Well, it has to start with changing us changing our own beliefs and practices and attitudes. Fundamentally, because remember, all, this whole conversation about empowerment is about power dynamics and who has and who doesn't. Fundamentally, it means we have to relinquish control. Or, in many cases, if we're beginning a new project, don't start by being in control. And we'll talk more about that. Outside resources can often erode empowerment. Have any of you ever seen that? Any, any examples? Would you mind giving us a thumbnail of what, what the situation was? Um, rural Sierra Leone, there's mining companies that 
NGOs, companies, they come in and do for us. We don't have to do anything. Yes, exactly. Great resources brought in undermine empowerment. Any other? Any other examples that come to mind right off? Okay, thank you. So our aim then as outsiders is to mobilize community energy. And there's no way we can coerce that. There's no way you can buy it or make it happen. One of the most basic things I've found is creating space for empowerment to emerge. And the researchers refer to the opportunity structure, the environmental factors that either resist empowerment or support it. And one of the ways I find helpful is think about your own personal life and your own personal journey. Can you think of somebody in your life who believed in you? who believed in you, who saw something in you, and helped to nurture that? Can, can you think of anybody specifically? Most, I know, I certainly can. When that happens, what did they do? What were the ingredients of their interaction with you? Here are a few specifics that I've seen. They saw you. You were not just a face in the crowd. They saw you. Recognize your potential. Challenged, pushed, stretched. And in ways that you couldn't quite put your finger on, they expected more of you. And you knew it. And you lived up to their expectation. They made space for you to grow. They taught and mentored. And when you fell flat on your face, they were there to help you learn from the mistakes, from the failures. And that's a crucial part of the whole empowerment dynamic. Paolo Ferreri, um, whose book, Pedagogy of the, of the Oppressed, has been really a big, big influence, said that people in chronically distressed communities begin to change as soon as they have hope that their action will make a difference. Because if they don't have that hope, then their thinking is, why bother? Why, why even muster the energy to try to do anything else? A part of our Emory Group research came up with some indicators of confidence. Hope breeds confidence. Uh, and they described it again in some of these researchy terms. Self-confidence and self-efficacy to set and achieve goals, ability to make informed decisions that are recognized and respected, and belief in their own ability to take actions that can make a difference, can make a change. They're really interesting examples of um, women who, after years of being encouraged to buy formula to feed their babies, were very hesitant very lacking in confidence to breastfeed their babies. They think, oh, I'm poor, I don't eat well, my breast milk is not good for my baby, and they lacked the confidence they needed to make that really basic change. Uh, we mentioned earlier the radical reduction in child mortality over the last 20-plus years. One of the most interesting conclusions that came out of that is that the most important health workers in the world are not doctors and surgeons, but mothers. Ta-da! <laughs> Let's hear it for the mothers and the final recognition of that. 
interesting stories from health development in India. In the early days of, of using oral rehydration therapies, that they, they, they rolled out the oral rehydration program in order to cut infant diarrhea-related deaths. And they rolled it out, and for a year, nothing happened. Nothing changed in the, in the rates of, of diarrheal di- deaths for children. And they come to find out that some of the community health workers believed so strongly that an IV treatment was better for the baby that they were not pushing oral rehydration therapies. But a couple of the moms saw some radical improvement that occurred using oral rehydration therapy, and they took over, and the rest is history, thankfully. But what we're talking about in empowerment is experiential learning. It's deep knowing. It's, it's stuff that nobody can just tell you, all right, you need to get over your lack of confidence and step up to the plate. It doesn't work. Some of you are familiar with asset-based community development. I think Brian Fickert's doing a workshop on that now. And appreciative inquiry. Both of those are conceptually really valuable tools in the whole arena of of empowerment. We also have to, in our empowering efforts, respect local context and priorities. If you're a newcomer going into a community, you can be sure that that community has a social construct that provides the order and cohesiveness, predictability, it, and, and they have their rules for making change. And it's all built in. It's not written up on a blackboard or on a community bulletin board anywhere, but it's there. And if we are going to be effective in fostering empowerment or self-empowerment, then we need to be very, very alert to and to work with that social construct. Working with it increases the likelihood that the community will own their future, own the vision for change. Otherwise, we increase the likelihood that they will become or remain passive recipients. A community health team went into a struggling community in West Africa did an initial survey, met with a bunch of the local leaders, and saw that their, their children were just very, very sick, very high rates of infant mortality. But not wanting to go in with a vertical outside intervention, here we are to solve your problem, gathered a group of the community, fostered conversations. What's your vision of a better community? What are the things that, what are the problems that are holding you back? And the local community leaders said, Our goats are sick. Our goats are dying. The community health workers in their back of their minds were saying, your goats, your stinking goats, what about your kids? But they went with the priorities of the local community. And they spent nine months or so analyzing what was causing the problems with their goats, what they wanted to do, what resources were needed. What resources and practices could they change internally? What resources did they need from outside to improve the health of their stinking goats? And voila, their goats started getting better. 
And in the process, the learning they did, the experiential learning of identifying a problem, envisioning an improved state, recognizing resources they had, gaining outside resources, built a learning process competency that they were able to draw on. And so when they sat back with their next analysis, they said, you know, our kids are not healthy either. Never underestimate the capacity of poorly educated or even non-literate people to engage in complex analysis of their communities. Some of you may have heard some of Ravi Jayakaran's presentations. Ravi is with MAP International and doing some workshop and undoubtedly will talk about this wonderful 10 seed process that comes up with amazing analysis generated by people in the communities of the issues that they're facing and the vision of the world that they want to create for themselves. We've talked about a lot of different stuff now, and, and you think, oh gosh, this empowerment sounds so wonderful. But in the real world, what are the barriers that you see or have experienced to engaging in this kind of an, uh, an empowering process with distressed communities? What are the barriers you've seen? Somebody else wanting to fix it. I'm sorry? Yeah, somebody else. You mean as in another missionary or missionary agency or group? Exactly. Yes, yes. Yeah, I know a group in Bolivia who have a five-week residential community-based health development project for which they provide no tuition subsidy. People coming in from the Andes, different places like that. A number of years ago, a very large mission agency wanted to partner with them, and they did an experiment for a year or so with that other mission agency subsidizing the tuition of the people coming, it from the get-go undermined the fundamental principle of self-empowerment that was needed to make the program successful. Okay, what are some of the other barriers? Corruption. Corruption. Exactly. Other barriers to this kind of an empowerment approach. Gender inequality, absolutely. Major factor. Go in and change that in two weeks, right? Yes, political, tribal. Uh, were you talking about the U.S. electoral process? <laughs> okay, excuse me. Um, so, yeah, um, several of them. Part of it is time. We don't have time. Some of us are short-termers to, to tackle that. And even if we're in a, for three years or four years or five years, lack of long-term partnerships with locals, we don't have the training in facilitating. We're trained to be fixers, not facilitators. And, or it may be that you're a healthcare professional and your skills are, are, are more in the curative, specialized, and focused. How do you get, a, get your handle, hands on around the task um, of empowering? 
And, you know, along the way, I have come to believe that there is a worldview and a theological issue. Walter Wink, who's a Presbyterian theologian, wrote a book, Engaging the Power. Some of you may have seen that. Seen that. He believes that one of the most fundamental expressions of human sin, evil, and brokenness is what he calls the domination system. That is an, a usually unspoken, deeply rooted belief that some in life are destined to rule over and others are destined to be ruled over. And there's nothing you can do about it. And he challenges us in many, many helpful ways, but just referring to Jesus interaction with the disciples when they were wanting to know who's going to be the, bad, the, the baddest among them. And Jesus said, yeah, the Gentiles in leadership rule over, lord over, but it's not so among you. We're, we are different, fundamentally different. So we are facilitators, not fixers. We don't have time to go through this, but Dr. Carl Taylor and Daniel Taylor in their book, Just and Lasting Change, outline a seven-step process that a community needs to go through every year, every year, that can help them own their future. And three categories, building capacity, that starts with creating or recreating a coordinating committee. Remember, doing this every year. Identify past successes, study successes, visit other communities, evaluate the situation objectively, discuss source of problems, involve as many as possible, especially involve people who are from different groups who are in conflict with one another. Get them involved in the process. Monitor momentum. Try, evaluate, adapt, improve. So, again, if you're interested in the slides, I'd be glad to share this with you. I know you don't have time to put it down if you're interested. So, again, we're facing this challenge. We're outsiders. We're short-termers. What can we do? And I'm, and I'm wondering, from your experience, have you seen examples of short-term missions that are especially helpful in an empowering sense? Or even longer term. Any that you, you want to share or point to? Yes. It is long, it is complex, it's challenging. Thank you for sharing that. It is a different paradigm, period. It is a different model of doing mission and ministry. And tradition 
expectations, our worldview as North Americans pushes against success in that effort, but we must not give up. I'll share this. I've, I've clipped up. Some of you may have been in a workshop with Greg Seeger. I know he's doing one here. Um, but from, from that, several specific empowerment opportunities that I want you to make note of, and I'll move quickly. One is understand the host community's sense of need and priority rather than focus only on your team's agenda. And this is especially helpful for short-term missions. So, for example, what that might mean is prior to the trip, either through a pre-trip visit or through local committee, get information. What, what does your host committee consider important? What are their health priorities? Let that information inform even your recruitment process. Who do you want to have on your trip? Uh, you may have some people who say, hey, I'm going to go. God's calling me to do this, and it's important to include them. But you may need to do some specialized recruiting as a part of this. And require pre-trip training for all of your participants. I don't care if it's a neurosurgeon. Require pre-trip training so that they understand the context, the spirit, the ethos of empowerment. Second opportunity, work with local health services, government, mission, and private. First of all, you need to identify them, again, through a pre-trip visit or with local people. Communicate with them in advance. Meet with them on site. This third one is actually a corollary to the second. Avoid unintentionally undermining sustainability of health care by ignoring or displacing local officials. There have been situations that you may have heard of where the medical team comes from the U.S. and they completely disregard, pay no attention to, may even disparage local health care workers who may be the only health care professionals within a half a day's walk or drive whose livelihood and ability to continue to provide health care depends on having the trust and respect of their local community, but they are disparaged or ignored by the visiting people who charge nothing for providing health care. And unintended collateral damage. So consult them early in planning your trip. Meet with them early. Build a relationship. Invite them to walk to work alongside you. Make mutual learning. Mutual learning. What do I have to learn from this country doctor? You would be amazed at the clinical skills of healthcare professionals around the world who don't have the sophisticated lab equipment. They know the diseases around. They know the symptoms. They're able to diagnose with amazing accuracy. Learn from them. And in your involvement, model attention to long-term care and using international standards. Be sure that you're conforming to using WHO protocols and record baseline measurements of children for follow-up and so on. So there are lots of things that you can do even in a short-term And it won't surprise you that your attitude and your deeply held beliefs 
about the capacity of the local people to improve their worlds makes all the difference. Okay, our time is up, so I'm just going to have to zip through this. And again, I'll be glad to share your slides. Your engagement and empowerment is not going to happen without planning for it. So you're going to need to make some specific plans as a part of that. And if you're serious about an evidence-based approach to the work you're doing, you're going to need to join people in uh, the NGO world across the, the, the globe who are struggling. I was talking with a senior health officer from a very large international NGO who said, you know, we raise a lot of money talking about how we're going to be empowering. But he said, to date, and this was, this was eight years ago or so, he said, we don't know how to measure empowerment, let alone whether there are improved health outcomes from it. But there's good work being done right now, and you can contribute to that. So um, I have a list of resources and best practices, but I want to especially just to ask you, do you, do you have any that you can mention just off the top right now? Materials, books, articles, resource persons, organizations who are doing exceptional work in empowerment? Because my intention is to, to add to this list, and it will be available on the website. be glad to send it to any of you individually. So any that come to mind right off? Great resources that you want to share, organizations? When helping hurts, absolutely. Any others? If you think of them, please drop them, drop by, either drop by our booth or see me right here um, to, to be sure and add to our list here. I want to close with just the sense that empowerment is a powerful way to love God and our neighbors. The reality is that what we do in our health ministries and the ways that we do it will either cultivate empowerment or disempowerment. And so this closing prayer. May God's Spirit give us eyes and ears to perceive and hearts open to receive the people to whom God sends us as equal sisters and brothers with amazing capacity to love, learn, teach, and serve. And may we together experience the wonder of God's transforming and empowering work in all of our lives. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate you being here.